This is the Liberty and Law Podcast, where practicing lawyer and legal scholar Jeff Teichert offers unique insight into the relationship between law and liberty in history, politics, and American life. If you have a passion for liberty, you are in the right place. Hello, lovers of liberty, and welcome to the Liberty and Law Podcast. I am your host, Jeff Teichert, and I'm a practicing attorney and also a legal scholar. I have my Juris Doctorate from Brigham Young University Law School and a postdoctoral LLM with highest honors at the George Washington University Law School, where I studied legal history, jurisprudence, and constitutional theory under some of the brightest legal minds in our country. And I am here to talk to you about the delicate interplay between the law, which restrains liberty, but also protects it. We're going to discuss liberty and law as they pertain both to history, to our heritage, and to contemporary issues in American politics and American life. I am excited to be doing this podcast. This subject is a passion for me and human liberty uh, has as often been called the oxygen of the human soul. I believe that. I want to talk today fundamentally about the foundations. I want to talk about what is liberty, what are rights. Oftentimes, uh, we hear people talk about rights in the context of saying, I have my rights. I'm an American citizen. I have rights. But what is a right? What do we actually mean when we say that? Oftentimes I've heard people talk about the difference between rights and privileges, which actually is a fairly modern concept. Uh, the idea that I have a privilege to do a particular thing that can be taken away uh, is really not something grounded in history. Parliament talked about its privileges and really it also talked about its rights virtually in the same subjects. Rights, when it comes to things like, you know, the, the classic example people always give you is the right to drive a car. And they say, no, you don't have a right to drive a car. You have a privilege to drive a car. Well, it is true that to qualify to drive a car, you have to do certain steps and get licensed and so on. But once you have followed those steps, you have a right to a driver's license. And someone at the driver's license division on up to the governor of the state cannot simply say, no, I'm not granting you a license because I think so. It has to be because you failed in some measure to fulfill the requirements of receiving a driver's license. And thus you have a statutory right, not a constitutional right, but a statutory right to receive that license. So let's go back to the word rights for a minute. William Blackstone wrote a famous treatise on the rights of persons. He actually wrote a four-volume commentaries on the law of England, but the first of those, volume one, is on the rights of persons. And it was published in 1774, so just a couple of years before the American Declaration of Independence. It was widely read in the colonies, and in fact, Edmund Burke, uh, a member of parliament, said that more copies of it were actually sold in America than in the British Isles. Uh, 
Blackstone also was his his four volume commentary was the way people studied to become attorneys in the early period and for about a hundred years after. Uh, that was what people studied to learn the law. So the law of England was passed down to America and and still has a huge influence here. And frankly, we owe a lot to the English for the things we understand about the law, rights, liberty, representative government, and so on. So Judge Blackstone wrote, the primary and principal objects of the law are rights and wrongs. So that's a little different than the way we normally think of rights. You know, I have a right to free speech, but this is juxtaposing rights against wrongs. And when we think of right and wrong, we often think of morality, right? We are moral actors. And the rights that we have as human beings have a moral and spiritual undertone. And we'll talk about that. Blackstone goes on. In the prosecution, therefore, of these commentaries, I shall follow this very simple and obvious division between rights and wrongs, and shall in the first place consider the rights that are commanded, and secondly, the wrongs that are forbidden by the laws of England. Rights are, however, liable to another subdivision, being either first those which concern and are annexed to the persons of men, and are then called jura personarum, or the rights of persons, or they are secondly such as a man may acquire over external objects. So Blackstone first talks about rights which exist within your person. And then there are rights, he says, which exist over external objects. So those are rights of property. And then he talks about how wrongs are divisible into private wrongs and goes on about that. Wrongs are things like crimes and torts. And legal wrongs, as you know, are justiciable in our system as well. But the thing I want you to get from my discussion of Blackstone is that the law has, or, or, or our rights have, a fundamentally moral and spiritual foundation that are inherent in our persons, in our personhood. And if we go back to England, we can see that <clears throat> fundamentally these ideas, uh, certainly not beginning in the 17th century, but, it, but, but the ideas were accelerated and, and evolved quickly during the 17th century. Uh, there was a great theological debate over the nature of legal rights and human liberty. Property rights, religion, and the privileges of parliament in relation to the prerogatives of the crown were the general themes around which rights developed in the early 17th century and upon which the conflicts between the Stuart kings and parliament centered. All of three of these themes developed around the central idea of divine rights founded on natural law, although the various 
parties arguing for their own point of view made vastly different claims about what the law of nature decreed. And so we're going to talk a little bit about how during the early 17th century, prevailing political norms in England dramatically shifted in favor of securing private property against the impositions of the crown, uh, embracing Puritan ideas about equality, religious toleration, and rejecting the king's use of the church as an instrument of propaganda and political power, and empowering parliament to safeguard the people's liberties against royal oppression. All right, let's go back and, and unpack that a little bit. When we talk about the relationship between religious theology and these theories about rights, well, the Stuart monarchs were big proponents of the divine right of kings. <clears throat> and this idea was, was very much uh, entrenched in their thinking. King James wrote two books. One of them was called Basilicon Doron, which was advice to his son who he thought would succeed him. He didn't because he died young um, and his second son succeeded him. But in any event, Basilicon Doron was about how to be a good king and implicit in the book and throughout it, King James is defending the idea that the king is the law speaking, that the king's word literally is law. Now, he would tell you in a settled state where the king is uh, governing with parliament that it's good manners, it's basically polite for the king to go to parliament and get advice. But he looked at parliament basically as a, as a big advisory board to the king and ultimately all of the power in the realm rested on the king. And why? Divine right. I'm appointed by God. And he, he in fact told his son Henry in Basilicon Doron, you should thank God every day that you were made a little God to sit on an earthly throne and rule over other men. And so that was the first idea, the divine right of kings. Now, oftentimes you'll hear people of the conservative to libertarian political persuasion, of which I am part, talk about how the American Revolution was a repudiation of the divine right of kings and that it was the first time in history people had stood up to that idea. It's a beautiful concept, but it's not true. Uh, People fought war, two wars in England over the divine right of kings. And uh, in fact, King George I, well before King George III, that, who we won our freedom from, King George I was something like the 37th best blood claim to the throne. And uh, the thing is, all of the ones in front of him were barred from inheriting the throne by an act of parliament. And so the, really the divine right of kings was no longer something that people were really talking about in England or, or asserting 
against uh, the American colonists at the time of our revolution. Hate to disappoint any of you who were raised on that myth, but uh, I, I am going to tell you though that it's a very important concept. Now, the people who overthrew King Charles were largely Puritans. And the Puritans, if you may know, wanted a purer version of Christianity. They rejected, uh, and they didn't think the Church of England was Protestant enough. They, they wanted to purify it, and, and they wanted to get rid of everything that they considered superstitious, and that's everything from priestly authority to uh, sacred sacraments that are necessary for the salvation of the human soul. And so uh, the Puritans believed in the natural equality of human beings. And one of the most important Puritan thinkers uh, was John Milton. And Milton wrote in a publication called The Tenure of Kings and Magistrates, which was published in 1649, the same year King Charles was tried for treason and put to death. He wrote, no man who knows aught, or no man who knows anything, in other words, can be so stupid to deny that all men were born free, being the image and resemblance of God himself. And they were by privilege above all the creatures born to command and not to obey. Whew. So he is saying, because we are children of God, made in his image, we are above all the other creatures. We are born free. We're not born to be commanded by someone else by the accidents of birth. So the Puritans had a very important theological argument, and that was that people were born free and equal, and that no man is inherently better than any other before God or before the law. And if you look at our Declaration of Independence in America, through that lens, it's a very Puritan document. We hold these truths to be self-evident, and Jefferson's initial words, incidentally, were sacred and undeniable. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator, endowed by God, with certain unalienable rights that among all these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, I want to continue for a second because this point is very important as we think about English and early American history and the development of these ideas, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. The consent of the governed. So the people are sovereign. That whenever any government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. Fundamentally, the Declaration of Independence adopts a very Puritan view of the law and of rights. The people are sovereign, 
They're equal. No one is inherently better than anyone else before God or before the law. And that was no mere academic quibble in the 17th century. There were others like Sir Edward Cook, uh, Chief Justice of England at one point, <clears throat> wrote in 1658, the king is under God and the law. Now, he was thrown in the Tower of London for saying things like that. And there was a big argument one day on the floor of Parliament where the king talks about how the king createth the law and, and Sir Edward Cook arguing the law createth the king. And again, that wasn't a mere academic quibble. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Did the king make the law or did the law make the king? And let me tell you, they fought a bloody civil war over that. Why? Well, for one thing, the king dissolved parliament a couple of different times, and the last time he dissolved parliament for, and refused to call another one for 12 years, just ruled by himself. And the only thing that ever motivated him to call parliament was sometimes he needed money and the parliament could raise the money. They could vote the money. But often they tried to vote it to him with strings attached to make him seed uh, away some versions of his royal power, some elements of his power, and govern in a more limited way. And King Charles, like his father before him, was very reluctant to accept any limitations on his authority. And after King Charles was executed and put to death, England was governed by a thing called the Commonwealth and Protectorate for 12 years. Oliver Cromwell was essentially like a president or a chairman of the board some people said he was king in all but name, but he didn't claim to rule by divine right. He was a chief executive. He governed mostly with and through parliament, uh, remarkable for his time in that way. And so the norms and the moral mores under which England was governed shifted dramatically during the 17th century. Now, after 12 years, Parliament voted Richard Cromwell, Oliver's son, to be the new Lord Protector after Oliver died. He turned out to be a weak ruler. The country was descending into chaos. Parliament panicked, and the Puritans invited young Charles Stuart from exile in France to become their king. They made him promise all these things to give him the crown back, that he would rule with parliament, that he would forgive that which was done to his father. And of course, he broke all these promises once he was back in power. He even dug up Oliver Cromwell and killed him again, beheaded him and, and put uh, his head on a spike for people to look at. So, Anyway, getting back to the idea of rights, very fundamental thing is the sovereignty of the people. 
And we believe that by virtue of natural law, and that is set forth in the Declaration of Independence. There was also Sir Edward Cook, which I mentioned. He believed that the law was already there, that it existed by virtue of the fact that there was a divine God and that we could discover his will by employing reason. And so judges, when they would make decisions between parties that would come in to litigate or in criminal cases, they would write an opinion setting forth the reasons why they decided what they did. And then from there evolved the principle of stare decisis. If you received the divine will through reason and you decided a case between A and B this way, and you had a similar case between C and D, you wanted to apply the same principles so that it was consistent. You would, and the rule of stare decisis evolved, which stare decisis means let the decision stand. And that's one of the reasons we respect precedent. But the idea was that the law was already there. We just had to discover it. And so Cook believed that the law creates the king and empowers him to govern and that the king is subject to it. And of course, King James was and King Charles were very um, offended by that idea and was, were, were unwilling to accept it. Both theories, you notice, have a theological base, a theological foundation. The idea that the king is sovereign and empowered by God and answerable to him alone versus the idea that the people are sovereign and empowered by God because they are free and equal versus the law is sovereign because it is given by God and we discover it through reason. And those were the three fundamental political ideas in the 17th century. Another important element in all of this was the church. King James uh, believed in governing through the bishops and making the church his rock. And if you think about it, the church, there were basically two ways that people got information in those days and in the early period when the American Revolution was happening. They got it in newspapers and they got it in the pulpit. So uh, what was preached religiously was very important. And the king sought to exercise certain prerogatives over the church. And as you know, um, during the Tudor dynasty, King Henry VIII made himself supreme head of the church in England. And the monarch in England still officially has that title. So, in other words, religion was about the the propagation of a certain political point of view or ideology. And uh, it could be controlled and made into the propaganda arm of the church or of the state. I'm sorry. Equally true is that the church could use the crown to disadvantage other religions that competed for loyalty. And as you may know, there were times in England when the Puritans had a particularly tough time of it.
And uh, so we need to understand, for example, the religion clauses in the First Amendment in the context of this larger history. King James believed that you couldn't have political unity without religious uniformity, that you needed a strong Christian prince in a strong Christian state and religiously uniform belief and practice throughout the realm. Helps you understand the First Amendment a little more, right? Just like we want a lot of, a plethora of free and strong media outlets with a variety of perspectives, we want a lot of strong and independent churches in our country because they compete with the crown, if you will, for loyalty of the sub of the citizen. And they also compete with each other and they provide a variety of different views on a variety of different subjects and issues, some political and, and some not. Why would, would that be enshrined as a right, just as participating in making the laws that you live under is considered a right. Well, it has a moral foundation, doesn't it? It is something we consider to be beyond the power of government to uh, interfere with. And so that is one component of rights in our republic and in the way we understand them is that they are things which we are entitled to do by virtue of our humanness, like worship God. And they are beyond the power of government to restrict. James Madison said in his Moral and Remonstrance Against Religious Assessments that because we can only uh, subject ourselves to the claims of civil society with a reservation of our loyalty to God, or as he called it, the supreme governor of the universe, that there is an exception to the, the laws of civil society to allow us to be loyal to God. And so one component of rights is that they are exceptions to the powers of government. But it doesn't end there. In our society, we also have believed from an early time that there were rights that existed by virtue of our humanity, but also rights that existed because government had been given no power to regulate in a particular area. Like Alexander Hamilton famously wrote in one of the Federalist Papers, you know, how can we say that there, that it should not be done that which there is no power to do? For example, why should we say that liberty of the press is a right when Congress has been given no right to regulate the press? And he was afraid that we might imply more power to the government by enumerating all the rights. He says, why don't we just enumerate all the powers and everything else is rights? Well, ultimately he lost that argument and we do have a Bill of Rights and we're very attached to it. But his argument that there are residual rights that exist by virtue of the fact that the government has been given no power to regulate is a very important concept. And we'll discuss that in greater detail uh, in a future episode. Uh, but today I, I want to get to the idea that rights 
are those things that inhere in us as human beings by virtue of the fact that we are human, that we are children of God made in his image, that we deserve to be treated with dignity, that our life, liberty, and property cannot just be arbitrarily taken away because someone thinks so. We have to be given due process of law and all the processes and procedures that we're entitled to before the law can act upon us and inflict punishment. So that's about all we have time for today. I hope this has given you an idea of what some of the foundations are for what we consider to be rights. And I think this is an important discussion, even though we're talking about things that happened hundreds of years ago, uh, to go back and uncover some of the mysteries that provide the foundation for the freedoms that we enjoy in America today. And I think it's good and necessary and important for us to understand where these ideas came from and how they developed. If we don't understand that, we lose our identity. We fail to connect with it. We fail to see why it's precious. And we see things as we do in America today where people are trying to stop people from speaking out. And it's frightening. Anyway, thank you for tuning in. If you are a lover of liberty, you're in the right place. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.